Well, good evening, friends. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. Um, we have people from various churches here, and I'm sure um, more that will trickle in uh, over the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Um, um, we're very blessed tonight to have a guest speaker, uh, a neuroscientist, uh, Dr. Joe Malone, who's uh, specialized a lot of his research on the overlap between uh, sexual integrity and uh, personal wellness. And so it's a really unique presentation. Um, when I heard about the opportunity to host him, I, of course, wanted to listen to his teachings, and I loved it. And uh, the way that I heard about Dr. Malone um, was through two relationships. Um, many of you are familiar with the Phi Center. It's kind of a pregnancy center in town, uh, plus. Uh, so um, it, does, it, it offers a lot of classes and services for uh, um, young mothers and, and also fathers. Um, and a variety of services. Um, they brought uh, Dr. Malone in town about a year ago, um, and it was just very well received, and so uh, he was invited back again. Uh, and then uh, my friend, Deacon Santiago uh, Molina, um, uh, who is at uh, St. Eugene's Catholic Church, uh, said, hey, we're looking for a place to do an evening uh, event with Dr. Malone. Uh, would you be open to hosting? And so we were very pleased to do so. So um, I, I'm not going to uh, give a super long introduction, but I did get to have dinner the other night uh, with uh, Dr. Malone and uh, with his wife, uh, Jody Lynn, uh, who's a gifted country music singer. Uh, and we got to know them a bit. Um, and uh, he's a very humble, down-to-earth guy. I, I think one of the things that was striking about his story um, is that he came into um, academia and into this subject matter a bit later in life and started writing books and has um, had a really unique calling in that. And um, I think as I've been reflecting on the importance of, of this kind of presentation, um, I, I know that many of you who are here tonight have heard uh, sermons or talks on things like what the scriptures has to say about human sexuality. Uh, and appropriately so. Hopefully some of you have heard really good talks about that. But oftentimes there's a missing component. And it's what um, a lot of the early uh, theologians in the church would call, um, but what does the book of creation say? Right? And because all truth is God's truth, there shouldn't be disagreement between what the book of scripture says and what the book of creation says. Right? Um, so what Dr. Malone really provides on this topic is some expertise when it comes to the book of creation. And I think one of the reasons why that's important is in our kind of contemporary cultural context, it's really easy when we only are dealing with the book of scripture and with, you know, little Christian bubble prayer meetings and all this sort of stuff to become kind of um, a bit insecure about Christian truth and think, hey, this is like a private thing. This isn't something that I like share with a coworker. This isn't something that, um, that I'm, I'm really viewing as public truth. But I think there's something like powerful, spiritually speaking, when the testimony of scripture uh, and the testimony of, of the book of creation are combined. And I think it can give us just some increased boldness that the truth that has been revealed in God's word is also the truth in the nature of things, right? And, uh, and so that's what I'm hoping tonight. Um, um, for those of you, I, and some of you I, uh, I know, some of you that I don't, um, uh, we probably all come with different questions uh, and, and everything, but I hope that we'll come away with just a little bit more of a solid foundation of what does the book of creation say? 
Um, just to say a, a little bit more about the order of the evening, in just a moment, um, I'm going to invite Dr. Malone up here, but um, he's going to speak for like roughly an hour, and then we'd like to do at least like 20 minutes or so of Q&A. So if you have any questions, just hold on to those or write those down, because uh, Dr. Malone would love to, to talk to you about those. And um, after that 20 minutes, what I'd love to do is just close briefly in prayer together. And I'm not just going to come up and pray. I'm going to invite any prayers that, that you have uh, to offer aloud, because I think when it comes to the topic of human sexuality, we all bring our own, um, you know, our own shame, our own brokenness. And it's important that uh, we open our hearts to the healing power of God when we talk about these things. Uh, and, and maybe for some of you, you're going to be thinking of uh, uh, sons and daughters of yours or, or brothers and sisters of yours or people in your church. And so just giving us a little bit of a space to pray. There's people from different churches around Tallahassee. And as I said, more on the way. So just want to make a little bit of space for prayer at the end. Um, and then I'll, I've also asked Dr. Malone if he would stick around afterwards, just in case um, people have more questions, or maybe you have a question that's very private <laughs> and, and you'd like to ask him um, more personally rather than in the midst of the event. That would be just fine too. But, but, but don't be shy with your questions uh, after his presentation, okay? So um, Dr. Malone, if, you would, if you'd come up into the pulpit and I would like to say a word of prayer for you. And in the Anglican church, there's a bit of liturgy that we use before we pray. I'll say, the Lord be with you, and you say, and with your spirit. The Lord be with you. With Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night, and we thank you for this man, and um, the learning that he has done to prepare for this night. And thank you, Lord, for the truth, not only of um, God's word, of your holy scriptures, but also um, that you are the creator of all, and you have put your truth into the book of creation. And I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to both this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Taylor. It's an honor to be here, and thank you for all coming out tonight. I know there's lots of other things to do, be doing on a whatever night this is, Wednesday night. <laughs> and again, we're from Nashville. Jody, would you stand up back there, please? Stand up. I want, you to, I want you to show the book, too. I'm going to have, have a few questions for you along the way. And for people that can answer the question, um, I'm going to give you a free book, okay? So hopefully some of you will benefit from that. As Father Taylor was saying uh, quickly, because I know time will get away from us, um, I really went into this from a scientific perspective only because I plan to use this, the book, uh, and all the information I'm going to share tonight um, on the on the secular university campus, I didn't, I'm a Christian. My, my wife's a Christian. We've been lifelong Christians, but it really didn't enter into my mind as I was researching for the book. And then again, as Father Taylor was saying, the the really great thing is that it did come out. It came out that that the book of creation max, uh, matches the the book of of science, I guess you'd say. So that's what I'm going to share with you tonight. Um, we have a nonprofit uh, called uh, SexIQ and sexIQ.org. If anyone want to take a look at that, my website is drjoemalone.com. You see some of the things I blog, um, and we also have—I always try to get this out of the way in the, in the beginning—Instagram uh, and and Facebook uh, site called Romance Revolt. So 
we're trying to encourage young people to revolt against the hookup culture and kind of the, the typical things that are going on on college campuses. So, in this sexual intelligence for females and males, what I've tried to do is I've tried to organize it, and please come in, make yourself at home. <laughs> I've tried to organize it in a simple way that kind of boils everything down to the most important, um, bless you, most important uh, p points. And so what I've got is things women need to know about men, things that women, uh, men need to know about women, and then what they need to know about themselves. So that's what we're going to try to go through in an hour. And um, again, I hope you find it interesting and hopefully insightful. The first thing I would ask you to open your mind to is that there's a reason that the old school, um, you know, dating, courtship, all of the engagement, getting married, the way it worked. Again, 1960, you know, you had a, a out of wedlock birth, birth rate or non-marital birth rate of 5%. By 2010, we had 40%, so eight times that. And we, I don't even know what the real recent figures on it, but I'm sure it's, it's higher than that now. So, but there's a reason that that worked the way that it did, the expectation of not having sex before marriage. And again, I went into this research with the, with the thought process. If, if, this says, if this shows that humans, you know, the ideal form of human relationship is polyamory, that's what I'm going to put in the book. And so, again, it turned out the way I, we've described. Here's something you need to know that's headline news, okay? Um, one of my friends who's a, she ministers to um, sororities, like, all across the country. She put this on TikTok, and she had 3.6 million views, 600,000 likes, a, a bunch of hate, 6,000 um, comments, and same thing on Instagram. But what she wrote in a clever way that I didn't know she was even doing because I was just having a conversation with her and she put it on, on social media was that men's bonding uh, process is much more complex than women's. And here's what I mean. Men require romance to fall in love. And what that has to do with is there's a biochemical process and it has to do with a neurotransmitter called vasopressin. Vasopressin is the primary uh, bonding hormone for, for males. Oxytocin is the primary bonding hormone for females. It just works out, just turns out that for a male to keep the vasopressin in his brain, the situation needs to be like the old school uh, courting, dating type situation where he's, you know, they're going out on dates, um, you know, hopefully chivalrous, she's opening the door for that type of thing. Um, but sex is not happening. And um, the what happens there is that if sex is happening, again, particularly in the hookup culture type of, of situation, and they go right to sex, in his brain, that vasopressin that was going to be sitting there because he's around her, he's, you know, he's attracted to her, she's attracted to him, it's all romantic. That's why we call it romance revolt, going back, back to romance, our social media. Um, then that vasopressin is sitting there, and it, starts, it, it helps to create receptors for itself in the brain. And if it's in the brain long enough and the receptors are created and it docks, and at that point, he falls in love. That's what we call falling in love biochemically, okay? And something miraculous after that takes place again as well, which is his testosterone drops. And testosterone is antagonistic to oxytocin, which men also have. So once his testosterone drops, then <clears throat> he's able to bond with her in a secondary way. So again, like I said, Men's bonding process is um, more complex and more prone to er error and, and, and uh, not happening than women's. 
And women's, as we're going to find out, women's sexual response is more complicated. So there's some interesting things that are going on there. So again, if they, if they come to the finishing doing the deed, I'm going to use those kind of words tonight because I don't know the age group of everybody in here. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so if orgasm occurs then, again, at orgasm, particularly in the male brain, there's, you know, flooded with serotonin, oxytocin, and especially opioids. And opioids are the thing that really kill off that vasopressin and make it go away. So the, the situation is, is that a lot of these young women today, and I had a couple of them actually that I was working with, their parents told them, one of their parents told them, and the parents unfortunately broke their, their marriage up, you know, with their, with their mom or dad, whichever one it was. And they were telling them that they had to have, they had to have sex with the guys that they're going out with or they would never have a chance to get, you know, get, ask them to get married. The, the guys would never want to marry them. But it turned out to be quite the opposite. And again, you can imagine on TikTok why it got such a, <laughs> so many responses. And a bunch, bunch of hate, by the way, too, for it. But so, again, for young women that want to have a long-term relationship, having sex with a guy is a bad, the worst idea that you can have. Because, again, it makes that process, it changes the process to where he doesn't bond. Um, also, relatedly, <clears throat> men see promiscuity in a woman that they're, you know, uh, having a relationship with. They see it very negatively in one that they, they want to marry or have a long-term relationship with. They see it positively in, in one that they want to have a hookup hook up with. So men have a tendency to categorize right off the bat. Again, not all men, but on a population basis, it would fit with most men. They categorize right, right away, either for a good time only or marriage. And so, again, young women in a lot of cases are thinking, you know, we got to play the game in order to get somebody to take us seriously. Well, again, it's, it's quite the opposite. Um, therefore, sexual integrity and sexual loyalty are the most highly valued traits in a woman than a man, that a man is considering to ask him. And the reason for this isn't so much chauvinism, it isn't, you know, the patriarchy, that type of thing. It's, it's an insecurity in males. Because from time immemorial, uh, males have, to, have had to depend on females to tell them the truth that this child is theirs. Because, because of internal gestation, they're the only one, the females are the only one who, who know really who the father of that child is. Okay? At the same time, so you have paternity certainty, they call it, from that, that element, that, that angle from the male angle. And from the female angle, you have female choice, they call it, in the science. And so from her perspective, she's got to, you know, she wants to find a guy that's good looking, has good genes for the, the children, that type of thing, but also will have the integrity to stick around when she's pregnant, you know, when things aren't so good in, in the future. So really, when you look at human history, it's been balanced on these two things, female choice for the reason, dual choice that I just mentioned, and also paternity certainty of the guy, being able to trust, trust the woman. One other thing to put a cherry on top of this, um, with, and this is literal science that, that has, the research has been done on this. Ten seconds after intercourse with somebody that's a, a woman that he's not married to, again, on a population basis, men's um, estimation of the woman starts going down. Um, ten seconds, like I said. She's not as pretty as she, he thought he was, she was originally. She's not as smart. She's not as good a personality, et cetera, et cetera. Because that bonding process has been broken down. Okay, again, <clears throat> on the other side of it, women's bonding process is much more simple. It just takes dopamine and, and oxytocin. 
and those are readily secreted in a sexual situation. So that's why you have so many cases of young women being brokenhearted and um, you know having having their lives torn apart by by these hookups, and the men being not as affected nearly as much in a lot of cases, probably in most cases. So let me give it to you um, succinctly, and this is what the research shows, and this is, you can share this with particularly the young women in your life. The shorter the time to sex in a relationship, the shorter the relationship. That's what, the, that's what on a population basis the averages are. I'll say it again. The shorter the time to sex in a relationship, the shorter the relationship. We are really a monandrous species. That means, you know, mono, one, androus, male. We are, have a tendency to be one uh, man, woman in our society, okay? Given the chance, a lot of us males will take more than one if we had the chance. And so that's kind of the tension that, that, we, that we have to deal with all the time. At every stage of commitment, though, what everybody, but especially the females need to know, is that male testosterone drops. When you get, you know, girlfriend drops, <coughs> engagement drops, marriage drops, and it really drops when they have a child together or children. So, again, you're seeing a 50% drop when, especially, only really they found in the research if he actually holds the baby and, you know, they exchange pheromones, basically. So, if they're not, he doesn't hold a baby, that doesn't happen. So, 50% drop in testosterone, 300% um, drop in cortisol, which also helps a lot, and a 200% rise in, in estrogen. Men have estrogen, too. That all, that all helps that bonding process to, to be solidified there with that child. So, again, as I was doing this research, as Father Taylor was saying, I was just looking at with a blank slate scientific mind. I have a long background in physiology. I said to myself, there's a design here. There's a design that, you know, that we're ideally meant to follow. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the revelation I ended up having. So, Continuing on with things that women need to know about men. I'm going to try to make this quick. Men are much more, as I've already said, easily sexually stimulated. Men have three parts of their brain <laughs> that are, have to do with the sex drive, and they call it sociosexuality, that are, that are twice as big as in women's brains. And they, are, they have over twice as many neurons jammed into them. Okay? One is the MPOA, <laughs> a medial preoptic area right behind where the, where the optochiasm comes into the brain. That's why men have a tendency to be very visual when looking at things, looking at things sexually. Um, the INAH3, which is another part of the hypothalamus, it's also twice as big, packed with twice as many neurons. And again, it is very, both of those, and the third one I'm gonna name, the amygdala, they're all very sensitive to testosterone. And does anybody know, on average, this is a book question. Jody, can you stand up? Does anybody know, on average, what, how much a man has, how much more a man has than a woman as far as testosterone level? Anybody want to take a guess? And if you do, you might win a book out of it. Ten times is a good guess. Not quite right, though. Close. Not quite right either. We have to go the other way. Twelve is getting closer. Fifteen? No. Getting Who said twenty? Right here. Let's give him a round of applause. 
men have, <clears throat> women have about 30 nanograms per deciliter of blood, and, and men have 600 on average. So testosterone, again, is a, is a sex-seeking hormone, okay? Estrogen is more of a sex-receptive hormone. So it's a mismatch. What I'm telling you is a mismatch in general between males and females on this whole sex drive thing. And again, I, I believe there's a purpose for it in, in that it helps the men to um, be willing to do the things they need to do to secure, you know, to secure a mate, at least in the, in the old days, okay? Now, um, you know, porn is a deadener, a duller of that. Um, also, there's been some, you know, droppage in, in, in uh, levels of testosterone as well as sperm count over the last 40 years, probably because of the environment that we've created. So these things, though, are, you know, that's your general everything else being equal um, situation. Also, one other thing that most people don't know about is sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG, which binds this and doesn't allow it to be active in our brains. Um, women have 13 times more on average. So not only do they have a tiny amount of testosterone compared to the guys, it's, a lot of it's bound. Okay, So th again, we have a mismatch here, and, and, and people need to, to realize that. This is not just common to us. us. It's all, pretty much all the different mammals. And all of this helps mammals and us, being a mammal, our males to be more um, vulnerable to what they call the Coolidge effect. And the Coolidge effect is, in a way, it's a funny story, we don't have time for it, but um, males have a tendency to want to mate with as many different females as possible. Again, in general, not all males. About 20% of the top um, IQ males, the smartest males, actually choose not to do that. Okay, so we got 20 and 80, 80% that will. On the other side of it, it's 80% of the females that will, that want to have a exclusive relationship and the 20% that don't. So very asymmetrical. All right, what else do women need to know about males? Uh, men, this is one that I always get. And by the way, um, on college campuses, when I make the statement about the vasopressin and uh, you know that need to have a chaste relationship and that's what makes that bonding happen, the, the question is, how, how long, Dr. Malone, how long? How, how? <laughs> but, and so I, again, I'm trying to try to give you guys, just like I try to give everybody the straight, the straight truth, as I know it. I hate to give this up, but it's like four months, at least four months, okay? It's better if it, I think, if it goes to all the way to marriage, but four months is the minimum. All right, men tend to over-perceive women's sexual interest. Now, this is famous for the, when I have the women in the crowd, um, want to describe this. Many times a woman can just be being nice to a man, uh, and he will perceive it as sexual interest. Conversely, women tend to underperceive uh, men's sexual interest. This leads to many misunderstandings <laughs> and much sexual conflict. Yeah, in the book, if you get a book, it's, um, it's all about sexual conflict. And I'm going to ask my better half to take a few pictures of this, if she, if she will, while we're doing this. When males become aroused, their ethical moral judgment declines. Again, women need to know this. This is really important for them. For example, when a man is not aroused, he will not try to tell a woman that he loves her in order to have sex with her. He won't uh, give a date, date, a date rape drug. Um, he won't try to have sex with a 12-year-old. The way they found this out was they put computer screens in front of college students, and they had, like, you know, pastoral scenes to begin with, like the countryside, and they were asking these questions that I just, that I just talked about, and all the answers were no, 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 no. I would never do that. Then they put pornography on it. Okay, and they upped the ante by actually asking them to masturbate to the pornography. 
And they started asking those same questions. Would you give a woman a date, a date rape drug? Yes. Would you consider having sex with a 12-year-old? Yes. Would you tell a woman you loved her? Yes. So, again, men's arousal is something that women really need to take seriously as far as being a different person in the different contexts. Uh, another thing that women need to know uh, about men is that chemicals in semen um, can put women into a more positive psychological state. They've done research on this with you know, women that were having sex with guys where they weren't using condoms and where they were, and again, they found all of this to be true. Um, the things that are in that semen that are absorbed by her are <coughs> endorphins, serotonin, prolactin, and even FSH, if you're familiar with that, follicle-stimulating ho hormone, and LH, luteinizing hormone, which can make a woman what? Does anybody know what that makes a woman do? Ovulate. Ovulate. He, he knows. He knows all this stuff. <laughs> One other quick fact. Um, men have over 80%, 80 more upper body and 50% more lower body muscle fiber than, than females do on average. That's why almost all spousal situations are going in the male, male abusing the female direction. And it's also why there's a lot of you know, people that used to compete in male sports that are doing extremely well you know, as, as a woman these days. All right, so that's, that is what w women need to know about men. What do men need to know about women? Um, first of all, women often tie emotion to sex and desire intimacy in order to bond and romance and romantic settings are important to women. Now, again, if you don't believe that, just get married to one, and you'll 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 have that you'll have that experience, or just date one seriously. Um, but as I as I mentioned earlier, women use a dual purpose mate selection process. They're looking for good genes for the father of children, as well as a man that displays character and assures them that they will be a good husband and father and there for the family that the couple is creating in the long run. Relatedly, women <coughs> are interested not only in looks, as I said, but whether a man is intelligent, kind, has a good sense of humor, and generally a good personality. They want the whole thing. They want the whole dimension of the, of the, of the, the holistic, I guess you say, dimension of the man. Now, as we said uh, just a few minutes ago, the men having this much more complex bonding process than the women for the, the reasons I described, Women have a much more complex sexual response than the men do, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Their, their sexual response is more complex. It requires intimacy and trust and the ability for the woman to relax. The autonomic nervous system in the woman's brain has to be able to kick in and they have to be able to relax in order to, since we're using the terms, or, to reach orgasm, okay? It's much more difficult on average for a woman to, to, to reach or, uh, orgasm. The other thing is, Everybody should realize, and particularly the women, um, and also the men, but especially within a marriage relationship, that women are like a, they're unique like a thumbprint or a fingerprint, okay? What I mean by that is, if you scan a woman's pelvis, the different parts of her, you know, genitalia are going to be innervated more, some more strongly, some less strongly, okay, in different women, okay? So, um, again, you're going to have sometimes, you know, the, the famous one is a clitoris, but sometimes that's going to be the case. Sometimes it's going to be the vagina. Sometimes it's going to be uh, the perineum, which is between you know the anus and 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 the, um, the vulva. And sometimes it's going to be the anus. It's going to be a, or a different a combination of that. And what that tells me 
um, and the first time I, I realized this and saw this research, was that two people who know each other extremely well, and, that, and to me that would be a married partner, marriage partner, um, that's what it kind of takes in order for a woman to, to reach sexual, sexual satisfaction as opposed to a man. You look at the man's innervation on his genitalia, and it's pretty straightforward. We're all pretty much the same. As far as it all, you know, it's going to work in most cases readily, especially, especially a, a young one. Young ones work without even them wanting it to half the time. All right, so hooking up is really, really a bad idea for women because as far as that type of thing, because their rates, if they're after an orgasm, their rates are really, really low. It's like one-fourth of what the male's rates are. Finally, <coughs> um, what males need to know about females. Women are upset, very upset by sexual aggression. And I found this one kind of interesting and, and kind of a bit surprising, but, but interesting. It's much more offensive to them, sexual aggression, than even verbal and physical violence. Okay? So... Sexual aggression, as we saw, you know, in the Me Too movement, um, is something that women take extremely seriously. Um, <clears throat> men are less than half as upset by sexual aggression. Less than half men are. And some say they even like it when women, on a woman's part. Relatedly, and this is probably something that goes on on average on, at FSU's campus and FAMU's campus and um, et cetera, Relatedly, 80% of non-consensual sex occurs during hookups. Okay, so that's what really got me when I was wor working with some of these um, administrations of the universities is that we're all against non-consensual sex, or let's just call it sexual assault or rape. Okay, so when you know, when you realize that statistically 80% of those happen within the context of, of a hookup, and in a lot of ways, from my experience, at the universities I was at, they in a way, at least implicitly, encourage casual sex. They encourage hooking up by the way they treat them starting at, at orientation, you know, the type of thing that they say to them, the supplies they give them, the, this, that, and the other, the expectations. So um, if we want to fight, if we want to fight rape culture, what, what the conclu conclusion I came to, we want to start with hookup culture because that's where most of it is happening. All right, what women need to know about themselves, I'm moving right along because I want to make sure we get to your a lot of good questions, because I'm sure you're looking at this crowd, you're going to have, have a lot of good questions. And I'm reminding my better half back there to take some pictures of, of this, if she hasn't already. Um, here's, a, here's a biggie. Here's a biggie. This is something that especially women should know about themselves, okay? So that's what we're working on now. And sometimes I think men knowing about this m might not be the, for the best. But alcohol consumption raises women's testosterone levels. Okay? And it lowers their prefrontal cortex inhibitions, which we all know about that, but it raises their testosterone levels. And um, testosterone is in such short supply for most women that they get a little bit of a, a raise in that testosterone level, and it really affects their behavior. Okay? So <sighs> women need to know that if you're drinking, young lady, and let's say you're, some, you're, you're naturally cycling, you're not you know, on, on hormonal growth control, um, and, and you're somewhere near that fertile window, um, again, days 8 through about 14, that you're going to have the tendency to be very sexually aggressive and somewhere in the ballpark probably with, with the guys. So knowing that, and even if, the, even if the dose of the alcohol is low, knowing that it's really important that women 
All of, it, all of this is for about being better able to self-manage ourselves. But this is really important as far as women in that situation. I think, again, from my experience with the university that I was with, um, that fraternities know this, and in a lot of cases, that's why alcohol is so, and they may, may know it just uh, instinctively, but that's why alcohol is such a big, big part of um, over-alcohol, over-indulging alcohol. It's a big part of the college life. Um, the other thing that women should know about themselves, and this is a really important one in this day and age, is that <coughs> first sexual arousal for, a, for a, a female at a young age really affects how their sociosexuality, which is their willingness to engage in like casual sex, porn, that type of thing, how, how it plays out in their life. With males, they found that this doesn't have that big of an effect, early sexual arousal. But early sexual arousal for females really, really lends itself to them having, on, on, again, on population average, having more of a tendency to be more socially, I mean, sexually aggressive and, and more male typical, I guess, I guess you'd say, okay? And again, that fertile window, just to give you an idea of, of how much uh, power it packs, in that four or five days that, that we classify there as a fertile window or the ovulatory window, a woman's estrogen levels uh, increase by 200 times. Now, if we want to put that in percentage terms, that's 20,000%. Okay, so again, women need to know about them, that about themselves. In the book, um, I, I've had a lot of my former students that are now like health, health masters, um, you know, have jobs out in the health industry. They read the book and they said, chapter two, Dr. Malone, chapter two, women need to read that. And it's all, all about what we're talking about here with the women's, women's uh, situation. All right, another one. Female anatomy makes, what women need to know about themselves, female anatomy makes women more vulnerable to STDs. The vagina has thinner skin and it's easier to penetrate with viruses and, and bacteria than the penis. The vagina's moist and warm environment lends itself to bacterial growth. For example, most women can relate to this, yeast infections. Infections often are not de detected because they're a they are asymptomatic and lead to pelvic inflammatory disease, PID. And that's famous. A, fri a friend of mine who's an OBGYN in Dallas, he made a, a career and he actually founded a nonprofit a, a, called the Medical Institute for Sexual Health um, on this, his experience of seeing women in the 80s and 90s. You know, think about how things have changed since the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and it was all about these women coming to him who wanted to have a baby, but they couldn't anymore because... There, because of PID, it had never been detected as asymptomatic, and it just crusted, crusted up their fallopian tubes. So, so again, women have a two times greater chance of risk of having STDs overall than men do, and then <coughs> women on average have eight times higher <coughs> HIV risk and four times higher gonorrhea risk. And by the way, gonorrhea is getting nearly treatment resistant because it's been treated so much. Um, that would be bad news if it gets, if it absolutely gets treat, treatment re resistant. Anal sex, and this is an important one. A, a friend of mine uh, works in Africa trying to get the word out on this. Um, and again, porn is influencing these things all over the world, as, as we know. Uh, and he's trying to get the women over there to realize that anal sex raises a woman's risk of HIV uh, by 17 times. 17 times, yeah. So, and again, HIV over there is fairly widespread, and also it's like a death sentence because they don't have the way, the, you know, the, the, the means that we do to treat it as much as, as we do here. Young women's sexual behavior. Now, this is what made me really, the Catholic Church, I think, really has this 
uh, down um, in a lot of ways. And I'm sure, I'm sure that, that the Anglican Church has, is very well informed and enlightened on this as well. But young women's sexual behavior affects their future health. Um, early promiscuity leads to higher chances of vaginal and cervical cancer. None or minimal number of pregnancies and none or minimal breastfeeding raises her lifetime uh, ch chances of developing ovarian and uterine cancer. So you're, we're, we're working our way in from the outside. Delayed childbearing and fewer pregnancies raise the risk of the lifetime development of breast cancer. Okay, so when you think back on the old school, you know, my grandfather came from a family of nine siblings. There was one set of twins in there. But that was typical back there, my grandfather. So it's back in the, he was born in the 1800s. And you go back from there, and there's a lot of that typicality to that type of thing. Large families, uh, many children, and starting young. It actually, it actually, from the research and from the physiology of it, it actually shows women are benefited by that. Um, I used to personal train. I had two women that were in their 40s and 50s. They were the healthiest ones I ever had. They both, one was a Mormon, one was a Catholic. They both had, they both had eight kids. And they were the healthiest women I've ever seen. And again, the urban myth up to that point with the people that were tell, talking to me was women shouldn't have more than two you know, children or that ruins their bodies. These two women were the healthiest things I ever, the healthiest things I've ever seen, and it's, it's even compared to the 20-year-olds I was working with. So, um, there's something to that traditional, open to life and that type of thing um, <clears throat> that the that the Catholic Church uh, has as part of their um, belief system, and also, again, that would be the traditional Catholics, of course. Um, here's one to think about: delayed um, a woman who has her first child around the age of 20 has half the chance of breast cancer as a woman who has her first child around the age of 30. So that 10-year span really makes a difference. And women's um, peak fertility is age 19 to 29. Men's is 24 to 26. So again, moving things back on the younger to the younger end on, on the marriage, I think that has a lot, of, a lot of merit. Just looking at it as a physiologist and as a, a person who's interested in, in medical outcomes. Uh, the last one I want to say about that is that women with 10 or more lifetime sexual, sexual partners have a 91% higher risk of developing cancer, all kinds. So 91% higher risk, yeah. And if in case you're wondering about men, it's 64%. So promiscuity is bad for us as far as cancer uh, risk goes. Now, hookup effects on women, 78% of women regret it. Women are more depressed by it. They low, have lower self-esteem. They have higher general distress. And most of them, many of them, want it to turn into a relationship, as, as we discussed with the vasopressin situation. Hormonal birth control effects. And again, this is, you know, hormonal birth control has different, um, you know, um, values for different people. Just what the research shows is, is what I'm going to share with you. Uh, the really bad thing that a lot of people don't realize is it can make a woman attracted to somebody she's not attracted to, she wouldn't be attracted to if she wasn't on birth control. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, when a woman is on hormonal birth control, it has a tendency to make her feel like she's always in that luteal phase of, of her cycle, which is the last, last part of it, or she's like she's pregnant. Okay? The follicular phase, the, the beginning, uh, the first, first half of it, she has a tendency, again, for, the, for her estrogen to be rising, her testosterone to be rising, and not so much progesterone. Okay? Um, and that's, again, when she's going to feel most sexy, she's going to have high sex drive and all of that type of thing, which... In the, in the right circumstances, is really is great, you know, in the right circumstances. Um, but when she's on hormonal birth control, 
it flattens it all out as far as her putting her in the second half of her, of her uh, cycle, making her feel that way and think that way, and also making her feel like maybe she's, she's pregnant. When women are in that second half of their cycle, um, uh, in general, they have a tendency to look for guys that are going to be you know, the good guy, the, the good dad, trustworthy guy. Not necessarily masculine so much and not you know, the hot, hot guy, the bad guy, all of that. Um, they're looking for that more, tr more dependable guy, which is great. You know? But again, as we said earlier, usually it comes out in the best, best case scenario is he has those qualities that I was just talking about, but he also you know, is hot to her. And, and the two of them have chemistry. Their pheromones are communicating with each other. And what that really comes down to is that the pheromones are telling, telling each other that they're going to be able to create great babies, better, better ones that, than they are. Their immune systems are going to be better because their immune systems are different. They're going to be able to create a, a better immune system, a better person. Okay? So what happens is sometimes this young woman that's on uh, hormonal birth control and is dating this guy, you know, and, and they're, they're having sex, um, t again, typically. And she, you know, attracted to him and, and that type of thing. And they, get, they decide, well, this, this is serious. We want to get married. So they, they get married. And she goes off birth control to have children. And now she's no longer attracted to him. Yeah, really bad situation for, for that. So that's one of the major things that people don't realize that, that is a challenge of hormonal birth control. Um, and ag again, it's, it's nobody, nobody's fault. It's just, the, it's just the chemistry that's going on. Now, a lot of people think, because hormonal birth control for women is so ubiquitous, they think, you know, they don't even give it a second thought as far as women taking, taking birth control pills. They get, they get prescribed it for, you know, acne, um, irregular period or wh whatever. Um, again, it has, this, has some of these really, really major effects. And it makes them into a different person, really, than they are originally. We, we have a tendency to be able to see this better. Uh, somebody like me that has a fitness background, worked in, in fitness industry for a long time. When people are, males are on steroids, which are synthetic, you know, testosterone, basically, you're able to see that, that change in personality when they go on them and then when they go off. So why would it be any different when these women are taking female, female um, hormones? It changes their personality, okay? So... The other thing is that's really important and really hard to deal with is that it raises depression and anxiety levels of, of women and fe females, especially the young ones, the ones f age 15 to 19. It's in the hundreds of percents of the, the, ra the raising of depression and anxiety, and then also um, at least suicidal ideation, and in some cases carrying it out. Okay? So the ones that are uh, older than, than 19, not, not as much, but still it's in the 50 to 70 percent, 50, 70, 80, 90 percent you know, range. So again, something to really take seriously. The worst offenders for that, for your knowledge, is, is the ones that they don't take orally. It's the patch, it's the IUD, it's the vaginal ring. So the ones that have those big loads of, of hormones to them. It also dampens sex drive. You know, hormonal birth control dampens sex drive. And so do antidepressants. So a lot of, again, I dealt with some young women that I was dealing with in school that I had in, in uh, you know, the college students that were coming to me and telling me their sex drive had died. And so, again, as a professional I was trying to be, I tried to let them know, you know, the different things there might be. And sure enough, uh, antidepressants and hormonal, and hormonal birth control pills were the culprit uh, with them. 
The other thing in the trials that they, they didn't really um, get, get out there much is that blood clots really get raised, a uh, high percentage of blood clots uh, from that, and also certain kinds of cancer uh, risks are, are, are elevated. All right, so that's what uh, women need to know about themselves. Now, what do men need to know about themselves? So we're coming up here to the, the home stretch. I need to start asking some more book questions. Okay, here's a book question. And there's no, you know, problem with wrong, wrong guesses, so feel free to guess. What is the, the, the year in life that males reach their highest levels on average of testosterone? Any thoughts? Yes, sir. 19 is a good guess. Another, another good guess. Is that what your guess, sir? Another good guess, but not quite right. Go ahead. 22, another good guess. Anybody else want to fire away? What's the highest? Think about young men and kind of when they really hit that stage. Who said that? Give him a, give him a round of applause. Right here. 17, yeah. And so, again, um, when young men go from, especially from age 13 to 15, is when it really starts, starts hitting, but it, it continues on from there. Um, a lot of them end up 30, with 30 times more testosterone than they had before they, they were age 13. So it's, it's like a huge change. And again, with females, their, their testosterone, their androgens, okay, androgens is just the general term for all of the, the male hormones, uh, they, they double. But again, these young men have 30 times more than they, than they had before. So it's like this different person. If you have a, a little boy that you're raising and, you know, they come to age 12, 13, and boom, they become sometimes a whole different person, you know, personality-wise. And I see some heads, heads shaking out there <laughs> in agreement. All right. Um, the bad news, though, is that I've named this the testosterone trap because that really drives a lot of this sexual behavior that were, you know, a problematic sexual behavior that gets them in trouble. But the other thing is that I call it the male danger zone because all that testosterone and then, you know, again, we don't have a really great way these days of getting that channeled in, in, in positive directions, although probably here you guys do. But generally in society, it's going every which way, you know, and it's going into the gang world and all that, all that type of thing. Um, I call it the male danger zone because um, during that time period from age about 15 to, to 25, when testosterone is at its highest levels, um, basically, young men of that age group have ab about around, it's a little less, but ballpark, four times greater chance of death by all causes than, fe than females that age, okay? From, yeah, from, from homicide, suicide, drug overdoses, and car accidents, okay? Again, homicide, suicide, car accidents, and drug overdoses. They're, they're acting out, okay? And the gang situations that do arise because, again, we have so many homes where there isn't, you know, a mom and a dad there to get together, and they just naturally, in a lot of cases, seek a family and, and seek kind of a dad, dad figure. Um, most of the killing that's going on isn't over drugs. It isn't over crime. It's over status comp competition with the other young men. They're trying to outdo them, you know, and particularly to kind of show the girls who the, the dominant ones are. The funny thing is, and kind of sad thing and tragic thing is that, you know, the girls aren't even paying attention to that a lot of times. But so many of them get killed. So many get killed at a young age. I believe that God really, you know, he understood this about us. He understood all these things um, when, he, when he created us. And worldwide, 
105 males are born to every 100 females worldwide. Males have a tendency to be killed off early, you know, along the, the line. So, again, I don't know how you explain that, but 105 males are, are born for every 100 the worldwide females. All right. Uh, I just mentioned males murdering other males occurs most from ages 18 to 25. It starts earlier in some cases. And more frequently unmarried than married men. Take note of that. More frequently unmarried than married men. Again, when you look back 50 years, 50, 60 years, and how it was then versus now, you can see why we have so much problems with all this biochemistry going the ways, the you know, disparate ways that it's going, whereas it used to be more guided and, and you know, there are guardrails for it. Now, I know that 60 years ago, there were things like, you know, race relationships, um, you know, segregation, all that, that, that were negative things. But we're talking about, and we don't want to bring that back, but we're talking about, you know, this uh, relationship that's probably the most important human relationship between a man and a woman and how that came out. And it affects, as we were just saying, it affects a lot of things downstream from it. How, go how good it is, you know, um, determines a lot of other things down, downstream from it. All right, so two-thirds of males killing males results from social conflict, as I said, rather than crime. And more than half of those murders are related to status competition. 93% of all people inc incarcerated in federal prisons in the U.S. are male. 93% are male. So again, you've got that testosterone and not much prefrontal cortex to stop it, you know, uh, up until about age 30, because males' testosterone keeps, you know, it keeps plateauing there and starts going down just gradually at age 30, about a percent a year. Um, and, and again, when it comes to substance abuse, here's a book question. You know, I'll save that. Men are twice as likely to experience overall substance abuse as women, twice as likely to get addicted to different substances. Here's your book question. How much more likely are they to get addicted to porn than women? Book question. Take a, take a stab. Take a guess. 100 million is a good guess. <laughs> but not quite. 60%. Uh, it's actually in times. How many times more are there? Want to take another stab? Okay, and that, that actually is a good guess, but it's not quite right. Somebody else take a stab. Nine's another good guess, okay, uh, but not quite right. Fifteen. No, this is, this is a hard one. This is a hard one to get, isn't it? Uh, okay, so it's kind of it's between the lowest guess and the high and the, and the kind of medium low to get guess in the, in times. Twelve. No, let's t let's take half of twelve. <laughs> six. Yeah, who's that six first back there? Right there. Okay. Give him a round of applause. So, there are six, more, six times more uh, likely to be addicted to porn than women are. Okay, again, we talked about, remember back to that optical, optic chiasm coming into the brain for everything they're seeing. Uh, and again, that MPOA, medial, preop, medial preoptic, okay, preoptic means right there, um, area of the brain, sex drive area. Again, 20, 20 times more testosterone on average. Uh, those, those parts of the brains I mentioned are s very sensitive to, to testosterone levels. So men are set up, especially for, for this. But I w actually work with a group of uh, young women 
that are also working to free themselves of, of, of the porn addiction. And I think since we've had so much, well, porn for, for one thing, so uh, girls being aroused at earlier ages and maybe some, in some cases uh, um, abused, that we're starting to see that female porn addiction levels rise. That's what, that's what this group is, is trying to work against. Um, and I won't get into the details of uh, how porn addiction works because we'll save that for, I'm going to do a talk on, uh, with uh, uh, Santi's group. Um, but let's just leave it at this, that your brain is changed at the genetic level by, by using it and using it over and over again. And especially males' brains. And, and males' brains, interesting thing about males' brains, another difference between the two, is that <clears throat> they're physically changed by gaming addiction. Males' brains are changed by gaming addiction, but women's aren't. Okay? So that's why I think we have so many male gamers, um, and that can be interfering you know, as, as time goes on in, in a marriage as well. Um, <clears throat> these various uh, types of addictions, which all involve the dopamine reward system, they call it the mesolimbic dopamine reward pathway, kind of a big, big mouthful. Mesolimbic dopamine reward pathway. It's right in the middle. Of the, the limbic system is right in the middle of the brain. It's the emotional part of the brain. It's, it's the most powerful part of the brain because it's got more outputs going up and, and you know, to the, to the cerebral cortex and down to the brain stem, you know, the autonomic part of our uh, brain that makes us, you know, blink and, and uh, breathe and things like that that we don't have to think about. It has more outputs going out to these areas that, that has inputs coming in. So in most cases, unless you're autistic, which is an exception because they have more cerebral cortex going the other way, um, and unless that's the situation, then most of us, when it comes down to you know, a thought versus a feeling, which one usually wins the argument if they're in conflict? The feeling, yeah. That's another thing All, males and females need to figure out about ourselves. Okay, so, um, okay, so, again, both porn addiction, for, especially for males, since we're talking about males, need, what they need to know about themselves, and hookup culture. We're going to kind of finish, you know, my, my part of the talk here with this, and then we're going to go to questions. I hope, please be ready to ask any questions you have. There's no bad questions. Um, when you have this constant going you know to sex to sexual release by a male particularly um you know reaching orgasm often and particularly not having to do any kind of work that would be the type of work that you do inside a marriage where you have to you know work at your job and kids come along you're working with them as a family that type of thing you're just having hook up sex with with women or you're having porn you know internet high-speed internet porn and you're reaching you know uh satisfaction through, through that, and it's happening often, it leads to dopamine depletion. And what dopamine depletion does to particularly a male is it's the one, it's the side of it that leads to male depression, really, really bad male depression. So again, when I looked at this situation, I thought to myself, God's design for all of this, you know, not hooking up, not, you know, again, porn wasn't necessarily around when the Bible was written, that type of thing, but the whole idea of sex being in that, in that context versus the context of a, a marriage. Um, again, my better half back there, and I've, I've been blessed to be married to her to going on 47 years. 
um, and all the benefits that come from that. Our kids, our grandkids, just all of the, all of the blessings that it is. I mean, it's, it's more important than anything else I've ever done, except, except Jesus as my Savior. Um, three degrees, I used to be a model, um, played, played Division One football in college. All those things, none of those things are, hold any kind of um, importance at all next to my marriage. And, and so, again, when I look at the design that he's, he's created, it really, really fills me with awe at, at the intelligence that he displayed by, by how things have been put together. So, so that's why I would, that's my message. One more little thing I'm going to add to it, but um, sexual integrity. I realized, you know, a guy named uh, Sir Francis Bacon, who is known as at least one of the fathers of scientific method, really, you know, uh, he, um, he helped found the things that led to the Enlightenment. And by the way, the Enlightenment wasn't, had a lot of things that weren't so great about it, but, you know, it changed, it changed us to the modern state that we have, are now. He said that knowledge itself is power, you know. What I came to, what I, the conclusion I came to um, about this whole sexual integrity, sexual wellness, you know, how, what does all this mean and, and how does it add up or not add up? What I came to the conclusion was that after all this research, sexual wellness is sexual integrity for humans. Mm. And sexual integrity is sexual intelligence. So, you know, it actually is correlated. Intelligence, intelligence and, and monogamy are correlated, not only amongst, not only between the sexes, as I mentioned earlier, 20% of males, 20% of the, of the highest IQ males see the benefit of exclusive relationships. 80% have a tendency not to. 80% um, of women, they have higher sex IQs on average, <laughs> see the benefit of, of exclusive relationships and 20% of them don't. Well, also animal species, the most intelligent animal species have a much higher proportion of monogamous um, species within them. The primates being the, the, best, the best example, about 30% of primates are um, monogamous. It's very rare otherwise in, in, in nature or creation, whichever you want to put it. Okay. One last thing for the males, and then, then we'll go to the questions. Um, over 99% of people who pay for sex, 99% uh, prostitution, escort services, etc., are males. So again, there's reasons for this built in into the brain when you don't have guardrails on the roads we're going down now, so, so to speak. And so there's reasons that our society is the way that it is. Mm. And, and I think we're faced with the challenges that we're faced with, and especially men in our society, but also women, because it, it, it's, it's a car wreck. It's a, tra a train wreck, actually, in a lot of ways, any, pretty much any way that you look at it when it's going just left to its own devices. Well, could we have a hand for Dr. Malone? All right, so we're going to open it up for a time of, of Q&A, and um, uh, I'm going to come around with the mic because um, we are live streaming this. So if you've been listening to Dr. Malone tonight and you thought, there's someone in my mind that I want to share this with, um, there will be a link for you to do that, <laughs> okay? But, um, but any questions? Yeah, let's I'm glad. I love the questions. I love the interaction. So please right. bring them on. Hi there. Um, a question I have is that someone who, so I'm 26, um, a question I have and something I've been talking to a lot of my friends about is that the desire to not, or decision to have children later in life mm -hmm. due to financial concerns 
Yes. And then also due to some people that I know who straight up don't want to have kids because that they do not want to cause them any kind of um, abuse or trauma that their parents gave to them and continuing that cycle. Because mm-hmm. um, I've heard studies or things of where even like outside of America and like Eastern Europe there or countries there, they're literally like offering like tax breaks or paying for housing for people who have like kids while they're young, a certain age group and get married because their birth rates are just declining rapidly. As, Hungry, have, there, yeah. have there been any studies shown the correlation between this younger age range of like younger millennials and then some earlier Gen Z of like of the of connection between like financial concern and then also waiting to have children? Or is that something new that's been recent? Uh, the research on it is pretty scant. I think, but it's it's pretty well known now that that that's exactly the I think the driving force behind a lot of millennials and Gen Z making that decision. I think that there's room to uh, rethink it because, well, the other thing is uh, you said a lot of great things there. Okay, <laughs> um, and one of the of course economics is a huge part of it as, you, as you're saying. Them having a bad experience with their parents, a lot of cases not being together anymore. And not wanting to repeat that, and thinking that they're older, you know, that they would be able to to do it better than their parents had done it, um, and then the other things you mentioned, yeah, all, all those things are uh, under, understandable, understandable. But the research on it, I think, is just getting started. Um, who who won books? Can you raise? It doesn't matter who who it is. Just raise one, raise your book up if you would. Battles of the Sexes. Just raise it up high so they can see it. Yeah, Battles of the Sexes was written. It um, came out, it was published uh, September 18th, 2018. So this book, to answer your question, uh, the, the two-parent privilege, that she called it, it came out exactly five years to the day after Battle of the Sexes, which was kind of, it's kind of again, when you, when you read it, it's um, written for the secular university uh, campus. So you won't find one little tiny place I talk about Christianity in it, but um, you'll see it, just find a lot of natural selection, sexual selection in it. But... Um, I think this is a uh, Melissa Kearney. She teaches up at Massachusetts. No, I'm sorry, um, Maryland, University of Maryland. She's uh, she would consider herself a liberal. I think near uh, near typical university, secular university, college uh, uh, professor. There, she's coming to a conclusion with this book that just came out in September. Just what you're saying that for the reasons that you cited, that uh, that's the case. But she's saying that we need to take a different approach to it because, you see, I've got marked different places. Um, it isn't hard to, come, to figure out, really, that kids that come from two-parent families, there are so many, she's an economist, there's so many um, advantages, you know, just by the science to, to that. Uh, and so, again, she's trying, you tell by the, the title, the two-parent privilege instead of the advantage. Um, She's trying not to step on any toes with what she's saying, but she's saying it's time we consider, we reconsider the situation. And I will add one more thing to what she's saying on it, and I won't take the time to read, read actually what she says there at the end of the book. Um, <clears throat> but there's another biochemical that I should mention to everybody. It's called GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid. And it's the largest, it's the most prevalent, I guess you'd say, has the, has the most... Um, bandwidth, so to speak, in the human brain as far as being an inhibitory um, biochemical. So, and it doesn't come online until 
in most cases from about 18 to 24, okay? And um, in some cases a little younger, like 16. Some of the more mature kids will have it start coming online. But really, young people don't have the ability in a lot of cases to, to stop things very easily when they don't have GABA in, in place. And the other thing is, the brain goes through a couple really um, critical development time periods and kind of op uh, uh, developable windows where it's plastic. It's really plastic from about age birth to about age seven, okay? And a lot of connections are being made. What's being used is, stays and what it does is, is, isn't being used gets pruned. The other one though is that 16 to 24 age, age group. And what I'm suggesting is in the old days where they had young men and young women you know, in the 50s and 60s, it was more like around 20 was the median average of, of uh, young people getting married. Those brains were still plastic at that point. And so getting together with another human being and really melding your life together with theirs, I think, is, is easier at that younger age as opposed to the older age. It doesn't have to necessarily be 20, but like 22, 23, 24, 25, you still have that, that, that developmental window. After that, it closes, and then you've got you know, more, less of a plastic situation. So I think there's advantage to the younger side of it. As a matter of fact, I'm, you know, I'm radical, I know, but I'm finding myself recommending if, you can, if a, a couple in any way can overcome the, the financial barriers, the uh, PTSD from what they had as a kid, if they can overcome that and get together earlier, there's so many advantages. And somebody mentioned you know, the um, replacement rate as far as having kids, you know, we're in, a, we're in a world of hurt around the world. You know, South Korea has got, got a 7% replacement, 0.7% uh, replacement rate. For every 100 uh, grandparent age people they have in their country, they only have four grandchildren. Whoa. And, and that's probably the worst in the world. That's the, that's the most challenging in the world. And, but our replacement rate's going down as well. It's, it's happening worldwide. And a lot of it is women not having any children at all. That's a, that's a lot of it. Well, so, does that answer your question? Okay. Great, great question. Right, we, uh, we got another question up here, Dr. Malone. Yes, sir. Um, so, my question was, we discussed earlier in, in the conversation, um, mm -hmm. um, specifically when men have intercourse with women right after, mm -hmm. pretty much as soon as 10 seconds, that biological response, we view the woman in a more negative uh Virus remorse, yeah. So, going off of that, um, is that statistic only prevalent in the context of hookup culture or also marriage because if you mm. let's say you are um like waiting till marriage and then you have sex with your partner mm -hmm. is that reaction still a reality as far as like within 10 seconds we will still continue to have that negative reaction and if it is how do you counter that not just from a christian perspective but biologically from a scientific perspective another Great excellent question, question. Great. um the thing that, the factor that goes against that, and, and it's true that, as I said from earlier, again, I try to always tell the truth, even though some of it's painful to, tell, to say. Men have a tendency, again, not all men, but your large percentage of men, to seek ver uh, variety. Variety is something that really raises dopamine, for one thing, and testosterone. So um, within a marriage, um, that habituation is something that ha has to be dealt with. But the thing that I would say um, that really changes that situation from, from a non-married and there's a hooking up situation to a marriage is that presumably that process where the vasopressin wasn't disturbed happened as far as they had the courtship. He, he actually bonded with her. She actually became his, his woman. And then by the way, the 
basal present is kind of possessive, can, which can be bad or, you know, bad or good, but uh, territorial, you know. And so he bonded with her not just not only on the vasopressin level, but also on the oxytocin level. So has a tendency to um, deepen, I guess. The relationship deepens. And I think that as a married couple, what needs to be advised is that you need to realize that both, you know, and it's gonna, there's exceptions to this with women, too. There's women that also really kind of get stale, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a marriage relationship. But within that relationship, and I, I write about this in the book, you know, that couple just needs to find ways to raise the dopamine levels up and, you know, doing exciting things together, traveling, you know, um, sports, things that scare you, stuff like that. You can kind of do that uh, and, and get that feeling in. And just, um, you, have to, you have to work at it. Marriage has to be worked at. But it's well worth the investment. Does that answer your question? Okay, it, it sounded like a glass of wine was helpful in marriage, too, from your yeah. talk. <laughs> I'm coming over to this side if anybody has any questions from over here. Wine at the right time. Yeah. yeah uh, uh, there was a, I, I take notes slowly, so I don't think I got this right. You mentioned, uh, and this is kind of technical, that testosterone is a sex-seeking hormone. Estrogen is a sex receptor or reception receptive yes. receptive hormone mm -hmm. can you tell me what what can you explain that to me yeah um I mean, that's a great you guys have all had great questions um testosterone you should should look at it as a aggressive and and going to the person and kind of demanding an answer type of a thing um so so sex seeking would be looking and trying to find opportunities that type of thing Second, which again, testosterone has a tendency to drive, particularly males, that, that direction. They're, the, they're generally the chasers, and women are the choosers. There's a book, there's a book called that. Um, but but uh, estrogen is, 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 on a, is a receptive, and what, what that means is that there's more openness. When estrogen is high in a woman, there's more openness to being willing maybe to accept, accept the offer. So one's, one's more aggressive and physically assertive, the other ones uh, may be hoping and wishing that, 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 that they get the opportunity to accept, but they're not going to be the ones that are going to push across and, and make, that, make the overture. Uh, remember how badly women take sexual aggression. It's one of the worst things that they, one of the things that turns them off in general the most. Se sexual um, assault, um, assault or, you know, uh, just, just even being pushy sexually. So they yeah. have a tendency... Not all of them, but again, there's about 20% of women, because of brain um, prenatal, brain brain exposure to um, to testosterone in, in utero, where they come out with more of a male typical type of a, a, a brain uh, organization, and so they have more of a male um, typical male approach to these things. But it's only about 20%, maybe less than that, 15, 20%. Again. Remember, you have kind of 80-20 on, on the males being the, being the ones that are what we're describing, 80-20 the other way on the females being the, the other, other way. Okay. All right, we have another question over here. So we talked a lot about how kind of monogamy is really good for us, and that kind of goes against some prevailing winds of our culture. But, of course, another one would be, as Christians, we believe that sex is between a man and a woman, and that's becoming less and less of a prevalent lead you know, popular opinion. Mm -hmm. Do you have any research to kind of like go against or be supportive of sex between a man and a woman as opposed to not? 
Man, that's a really big question, uh, another great question in our society that we're really wrestling with these days. Um, just on the surface, yes, I mean, there's so many ways that um, heterosexual um, bonding and, and pairing have advantages over, over non-heterosexual bonding and, and, and that type of thing. Uh, again, in this book, which again just came out in September, she, she goes into some of the research on that. Again, she's very hesitant in, in making the points that she's making, but the research that she shows, again, economically and, and all these kind of just various figures that aren't, they stay way away from any kind of um, um, religious overtones or anything like that, or even ethical overtones. Yes, she's, she so shows that that's the case. And um, children, you know, from a male and female bonded pair, married pair, the, the female, of course, I mean, has a number one, you know, uh, most bonded relationship with a child in general. And the child, you know, she is, the mother is crucial to the, to the child in their development. But the research is showing now that the, the male element to, to the child's development, how they grow up, um, what they learn to do, do they, are they rough and tumble pa played with? That's, one, that's a big one, you know, for the males. Males and the and the, and the both both of them, and both sexes really the 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 male children especially benefit from that rough and tumble play and kind of how to physically be with some other uh, another person, but the female as you probably all know also really gains a lot from a from a dad being in the home and doing those kind of things with her, but but just kind of being the first role model for for the, uh, hopefully the male that she's going to find to repeat the, the process. Um, a counter to that, uh, uh, something that I'll throw in that, that I didn't say earlier that was in this um, text. And when I was mentioning the reproductive uh, health of, of females and how their behavior uh, really, it really affects that down the road. Um, a girl reaching her, starting her uh, menstruation, you know, her period, early also raises greatly her chances of um, having some problems with reproductive cancers. And re by the way, breast cancer is the number one cancer in the world now, as opposed to it, start, it gained that notoriety in uh, 2020, overtook lung cancer. And only one sex, you know, 99% of those breast cancers are in, in females. So. It's really a scourge on females, but um, a woman, young woman that starts her, I guess, puberty and her period early has a greater chance of down the road cancer. And one of the things that, this isn't the only one, one of the things that is very influential on that is whether or not her biological father and her mother are in the home with her. In that case, it starts later, what the, re the research is showing. It starts earlier in many cases if the, the mother is single, just has like boyfriends come in. An unrelated male, reproductive age male is in, in, in the household, either that, you know, or a, uh, like a stepfather, that type of thing that isn't biologically related to her. Well, so I think there's these things that are set up, again, to me it's like God's design that you can see once you step back from it. You know, again, physiologically, which is my, my area, and scientifically, you can see that the way, the ideal way that it's supposed to go has all these kind of safeguards and, and, and protection b built in. So it's not, it isn't uh, the end of the world, you know, if there's a stepdad. 
or if there's just a single mother or that type of thing. There's a lot of great outcomes that, that happen from that. But to give yourself the best chances to your question, yes, I would say that hands down, uh, a married couple that go the distance would be the best. Yes, sir. The big one there, and if you didn't. Um, what, you, what was the question? Will you repeat it? Yeah. The question was, all these have been great questions. Um, well, probably one of the best groups I've ever dealt with. Um, and I've had some good ones. Uh, the question was, do, is there a biological effect of growing, for a male, growing up in a household where there is no father figure, correct? Or a single parent? No, no mother figure. Um, there's less research on that, but, but there is some, yes. And as a, matter of my, as a matter of fact, my father, so I had a little personal experience on this. This is back in the 1920s. Um, he grew up in a, in a family with no mother because his mother had died, died young, very young. And uh, I know personally that he was affected by it because his, he really had a hard time emotionally being able to show emotion, you know, mm -hmm. that type of thing. So from personal experience, I know that. Um, but the research has shown that, you know, kind of gone further with that and shown that, that that's a general reaction. Boys that are raised without a mother in, their, in the home have a tendency to have, be stunted in their emotional growth because they don't get that kind of loving, nurturing, kind of um, unconditional acceptance that a, that a mother has a tendency to give. So, so yes. The famous one, though, and the one that's, of course, most prevalent is the male, the male not being there. But it does have an effect. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, uh, so I had a question real quick, and then I'm going to let um, one of our youth ask the last question. Um, sure. So um, I, was reading a, I was reading an article today, actually, that was really um, kind of contrasting um, what Scripture says about male and female and then, like, cultural expectations. Um, and it was making the point, for example, that a lot of cultural expectations aren't necessarily biblical, when it comes to male and female, of course. Right. Uh, and it, it actually um, highlighted, for example, something about the preference for the color pink and the color blue. Uh, very uh, male-female in our kind of like, um, in our culture, but that that was different like 100 years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like there was a real missing ingredient in this article um, because it was talking about a, a sort of a binary between like the biblical and the cultural. Mm -hmm. But a lot of what you're talking about is... Uh, on the kind of um, level of nature. Yes. Um, so can you speak to, it seems like a lot of the things that you said have to do with um, chemical and creational differences between male and female. And I'm just wondering like how for you, you see the interplay between nature and then cultural expectations when it comes to male and female. <laughs> Another great question. Um, that, that really is kind of the gist of it, really, um, because there definitely is an interplay between nature and nurture um, in this whole thing. Uh, you know, children that are raised in some of these environments that we would think of as optimal, they have a lot more resilience as far as having, you know, problems come, coming at them and, and, and kind of being vulnerable to, to problems. But the bottom line is that they're going to be, there's going to be these inclinations. There's going to be these proclivities in people, males in general on, on, on a population basis average, females in general on a population average as well. So the whole idea of sex IQ, you know, as, as we've outlined in the book, and again, there's the site, and then 
and we talk about, I talk about this in drjoemalone.com, um, is to grab hold of that knowledge. And again, Sir Francis Bacon said, knowledge itself is power. Grab hold of the knowledge that we have now that we didn't have 20 years ago about, just like you said, the brain biochemistry, not brain, but the whole body really biochemistry, and also anatomy, because it's the anatomy of the, the male brain and the female brain, as I said, are sharply different so when, it comes, when it comes to the sexuality part of it. Mm -hmm. We as a species, of course, we're the same species, so we're not, we're not um, that different overall in many, in many ways, but in the sexual area, we are. And, and again, there's reasons for that probably historically, you know, in the way that our species, if you want to talk about it as a species, developed. So, yeah, it's wrestling with, it's helping what we're trying to do and what you're asking about, I think, is being honest and real about the fact that in most cases, many cases, there's going to be a sh some sharp differences there when it comes to sexuality. And it's going to, it's going to lead to sexual conflict in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we knew more about it, if generally in the society, the things we went through tonight, if generally in society they knew, knew about it, and again, I encourage you to, to share it with people that you, that you, that you know, um, we could raise the sexual empathy, which is what I'd like to see. I'd like to see mm -hmm. one sex be able to understand and you know, be able to put the best foot forward to the other sex, knowing what that sex is like compared to themselves. Because... In, in reality, um, again, this is another thing that Sante's group does well, I think, and a lot of other churches do too, including this one, I'm sure, is, is point out and realize that women and men, males and females, are really complementary. You know, they have complementarity, they're complementary with each other because the thing, you know, it's one half and another half, and you put them together, you really have quite the combination, right? And you, cre you create, uh, it becomes one, you know? You create literally more life mm. out of that. So, um, and when it's done right, when it's done the way we've been describing, um, it is something that really has a lot of outcomes that turn out on, on average to be much better than if it's done the other way. But as you said to you know, your remarks, which I thought were, were great earlier, Father Taylor, um, we live in a real broken world, as we all know. And... Um, because we've done things, and this includes myself, in the past that, you know, have been, haven't gone with what we're talking about here. And I, I'm, I can tell you I'm not, I'm not perfect in these areas. I'm not speaking from a, a place of perfection. But it helped me so much to learn this to better self-manage myself. So that's, that's the goal and the hope is to put this creation, this creation uh, book, so to speak, in people's brains and in, in their repertoire of things that they can use to um, order their lives with. Because, again, what I found is if when we, personally, Jody and I, when we order our lives along, the, along God's design, things have a high, high percentage tendency to come out really, really well. <laughs> and when we don't, there's, uh, you know, we've got, a, we've got a pathway that's leading over a cliff, okay? <laughs> and that's, again... You know, t Jesus talks about being the good shepherd. The good shepherd helps the, the, them stay on the pathway away from the cliff. And a lot of people these days are getting people, the sheep, so to speak, going down the pathway that's going to end really, end really badly. So, mm -hmm. so yes, uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, thank you very much. That was helpful. Um, a final question here. Uh, you said earlier that um, porn is correlated with the depression in males. Is that correct? 
Yes, uh, constant use of, or a lot of use of word, and particularly if you, again, being very just open with this, if you combine it with masturbation, which usually goes, to, those two go together, it has a tendency to deplete their dopamine and, and really bring on a really bad case of, of, of depression. Okay, so just to, be, just to clarify, masturbation is um, correlated with uh, higher depression rates. Yeah, when it comes too close together. When it, we seem to be designed for, again, putting it very, I appreciate you guys being willing. To, uh, you use the word romance at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> romance would be the best way to put it. But when people, and particularly males, have orgasms too close together, and when they're not work, working for that to happen, they're not investing themselves and working for it, um, we have this kind of this uh, teach, you know, uh, teeter-totter, this balance, that when we get too much pleasure, we're making the teeter-totter go down because of too much pleasure, the pain side goes up, okay? And so what we need to have is a balance between pleasure and pain or work and play, okay? And these days we have a tendency in our, our world that we live in, it's all either pleasure and, and no, no, no um, pain or it's all play and no work, okay? So, and we're not designed for that. We're designed to have to put effort into things. We're, we're designed to have hard times, but in the service of, of doing good things. That, that's, that, I think, is the, the guardrails that God put on for us, and the Bible is full of, full of examples, is denying yourself, pick up your cross, you know, and follow me. And uh, it, it makes me emotional. But um, So we've... Particularly, I think in the last maybe 10, 15 years, we've really, we've really lost our way. America's lo America in particular, and Western Europe in particular, have lost their way when it comes to, comes to this. So Eastern Europe, I, uh, ironically, I think there's a lot. Somebody mentioned that uh, Hungary you know, is trying to do things where they're trying to encourage earlier marriage and, and children being had and that type of thing. Eastern Europe seems to, oddly, the, the, the countries that were behind the, you know, the, the Iron Curtain, they seem a lot of them uh, be on the uh, opposite track that we are. So, uh, I think there's there's room that room for us to be able to learn from all these things and be able to go down the better pathway. And one other quick thing I want to say, so that we kind of dispel um, the thought that oh, it just was better back in the past, and it's just it's a linear history's a linear change, and so if it's you know it's gotten worse, it's just going to keep on getting worse. Really though, when you look at history, it's cyclical. And throughout history, there's been, you know, times of sexual anarchy, which is one, I think we're in one right now. I think you mm. agree with me with that. With that. But also a, a pendulum swing back to a time of sexual integrity. Really in, the last, really in the last 350 years, we've had three pendulum swings. Now, they don't just swing by themselves. It's people that have to actually, you know, make the thing swing back. But it seems like people get to a certain point with sexual anarchy, and they, they get sick of it and say, okay, we can't, we can't keep going this way. And so it goes, people get, in, get involved, and they push back. And so I think we can do that again, and that's what we're all about. We'd love to have you all join us. So uh, you've been a wonderful audience, and uh, I think we have a little time here. For, yeah. Can for we have another hand for Dr. Malone? Thank you. And... Um,
Uh, he's agreed to hang out afterwards. If there's any kind of uh, more questions that you have, you just didn't get a chance to ask your question, or you wanted to ask a, a question of a more personal nature, he's, he's going to do that. Um, but before we, we close, um, I think you know, one of the things that Dr. Malone said is he's like, I'm not sharing all this because I'm perfect. And you know, in my experience as a pastor and as a campus minister is we're all broken sexually in, in our own ways, and we all need healing. Uh, and we all need the grace of God. And so before we close tonight, I just want to ask if we could stand. And, um, and I want to invite um, just a brief time of, of prayer. Um, I'm, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then just uh, maybe there's a prayer uh, on your heart for your church. Or maybe there's a prayer on your heart for this nation. Or maybe um, there's even a, a prayer that you have for yourself that you'd like to lift up and then I'll close us in, in just a few minutes. So come Holy Spirit. Minister to our hearts in this place, Lord. We come with broken hearts, um, often broken by our own sinful choices, sometimes broken by the sinful choices of other people. And we need your grace and mercy to flow into our lives and invade the cracks and crevices of our hearts and to begin to heal us and set us free. Thank you for the knowledge, Lord, you say um, that, the, that we'll know the truth and the truth shall set us free. Um, Lord, we need you to speak a personal word over us. And we pray that you would help us to open new places of our hearts for your healing. I just open up a little time. There's a prayer that the Lord has laid on your heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, would you give your people a culture that celebrates babies, that welcomes life, Lord, that we would see children as a blessing and as a gift and not as a burden to be protected against. Mm. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord. Bless you. Mm -hmm. 
Let's close together with the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you for coming tonight. Please hang around and come up here if you want to uh, talk any more with Dr. Malone. Otherwise, uh, uh, thank you for coming and please drive safe on your way home.